Welcome back to a brand new bonus episode of Full Metal RPG. I'm your host, Brendan Carey, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. We met Zach Smith at Gen Con, and we asked him if he'd like to come on, talk about his Kickstarter for his new modern horror game, Demon City. And uh, we made that a priority. Zach reached out to us, and uh, we're going to have him on tonight. Now, uh, Adam's joining me for the interview, and uh, so he's going to be asking, I think, the preponderance of the questions, but this is kind of like a double interview with Zach Sabbath. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with his uh, bona fides, he's behind the blog, I Hit It With My Axe, uh, playing D&D with porn stars. Uh, he also has contributed greatly to Lamentations of the Flame Princess and to Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. You may remember some of his award-winning books, the uh, sort of, I mean, on a very literal level, game-changing Red and Pleasant Land, Maze of the Blue Benusa, and Vornheim. And, uh, you know, I, I for one fully expect uh, Demon City will change contemporary horror gaming the same way that Vornheim has changed OSR City Gaming. So that's something to be on the lookout for. Without any further ado... Going to hand it over to Adam and Zach. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Zach, thanks for coming on and talking to us, man. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Brandon. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Demon City? Uh, what gap do you feel it's filling in the in the current role-playing space? Well, I feel like it's, <coughs> it's a horror game. It's like a horror crime game. So it's, uh, it's built from the ground up to deal with sort of like urban crime and horror. So it's, and it's a general horror game. So Call of Cthulhu is like, it's a general horror game, but it's basically Lovecraft centric. So uh, a lot of the assumptions and ideas start with Lovecraft and go from there. And in terms of system, it sort of starts with the percentile like RuneQuest system and has evolved from there. So this one is sort of, re like starting over from an assumption of okay there's going to be investigation as part of it there's going to be crime uh there's gonna be support for crime and horror stuff equally it's going to be a general crime thing and a general horror thing so you it's you know you'll have vampires you'll have werewolves you'll have you know but each one of those things will not be like a stock element they'll be rethought enough to make like the Demon City Vampire, a specific thing without taking it out of the genre. Um, so that you can kind of do like a True Detective Season 1 meets, you know, uh, Let the Right One In kind of thing, or uh, a million things in between. You know, like a giallo, like Italian horror kind of freak out, or Japanese, like manga horror, like just some, like a more modern kind of thing. And I looked for all the places where, when I would run a horror game, like things that we liked to do or kept end up doing that weren't especially like designed to be supported in other games and kind of made them, found out the edges where you could stick in new ideas. Like, uh, like I noticed that, you know, horror where there's a sizable action element, which is a big thing in like Japanese anime and stuff where you know something like really horrific well it'll be a car chase and it's like a demon will come out of the car and explode and like stuff like that was you know I, I looked at fights and tried to make them more like horror movie fights 
Um, and then I noticed, you know, in any investigation scenario, there's always like these scenes at the bar, you know? So I didn't want to go full story game where you like playing out the first drink, the second game, drink the third drink. But I built the experience system around what do the characters do between episodes, so to speak, which was actually derived from an old school D&D thing that Jeff Reince did for uh, spending your extra money on basically partying in between dungeon adventures. And so I was like, well, you know, between adventures, we always hear that like the downtime system, like we always hear that, oh, you know, you know, Rust was at home with his like diagram reading up all his books on whatever and so and so had their library full of occult texts and somebody else was at the bar and this guy was drinking too much and so that's the experience system is you pick which thing you're doing between sessions and then you roll for how risky that is and then you come back the next time so you don't have to take up a lot of session time in those things but they still become part of the background and then from Ken Height's game, Knight's Black Agents, he had a spy vampire game that he put together and had some really interesting ideas in there about uh, creating a network behind the character because, you know, when you're a character, like uh, other people that they know and stuff like that. And I thought, like, you can call it Cthulhu whenever a character survives two or three adventures, you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, he fought Nyarlathotep three weeks ago, and then a couple months before that, he fought Cthulhu. Like, that's not any character in fiction except Hellboy, right? Uh, whereas in the X-Files and other sort of serial horror things, we have a person developing a network. Like, the you know, the X-Files people have the lone gun guys, and they meet people, and that kind of becomes their setting, which is a group of ordinary people they know that uh, can help them in different ways. So I wanted to, again, create a way to make that, again, without making the game all about that you can kind of get contacts organically during the game so there was a bunch of, i wasn't super unhappy with the games i was playing but i was like if we just start with no assumptions from ground zero and build up from there you can actually include a lot of things that push it in a certain direction while still allowing for a lot of flexibility about what kind of story you want to tell oh cool so it sounds like a little more um true horror less kind of splatter punky uh, more kind of grounded in reality to give players kind of that gritty street level type of experience. Yeah, although on the other hand, like it does have like all of the, you know, like you can do straight survival gore and that's like one of the easiest things to do in the game because monsters are like, it's one of those games where the baseball bat and the shotgun do the same damage, you know, um, because it's more about getting the right advantage over a monster that way overpowers you, you know, uh, and less about like, a tactical calculation based solely on numbers that are unique to that game you know so it's more like you're gonna die let's make sure that you uh you you kind of figure out ways to to not die that that rely on thinking you know uh also uh, which i totally forgot is the whole resolution system is on tarot cards not dice so. Um, can can you speak on that for just a second? Since since we're like segueing to that, it's one of the things that I saw in the Kickstarter video and that like intrigued me like heavily about the game. It just looks like very visually compelling. Do you want to go ahead and talk about the tarot card mechanic for a second? Sure. Um, for the first fifty to seventy-five percent of the time I was designing this game, it was just a D10 mechanic, and it worked just fine. Uh, but you, but then I figured you can because I had tarot cards as a theme in the game anyway, if you create specific decks uh, that mostly are full of 1 to 10s, like 
ace of swords, two of swords, three of swords, four of swords, five, up to ten. And you give the players one deck, which is mostly cards ranked one through ten, and you give the GM another deck, uh, which is also cards ranked one through ten, you have a very close approximation of a D10 die roll. And then on top of that, you can take all the extra cards that are in the tarot, and you can use them essentially as crits, or mechanically kind of like magic weapons, in the sense of when you defeat a foe, uh, you get some of the special cards from their deck, which means your fate has changed. You've defeated a werewolf, the werewolf's cards include strength, which is an eight. So that comes out of the, the host deck, it goes into the player deck, which has 40 cards, one through 10, and one of those cards now becomes strength, the werewolf card. And the player, whoever killed the werewolf, gets a slight change in their fate based on that. And there's a reward specifically associated with uh, that card, which, hold on, I got real life ambulance outside or something. You're in DTLA, right? I'm in Demon City. <laughs> yeah, but uh, basically when you get a card reward, you can do one of two things. You can either spend the card to change your character's life in a certain way or change it at a crucial moment. Like if it's a, I don't know, Knight of Swords gives you a bonus in combat, you know, so you would use that once. You use it and it's gone. Or you can leave it in your deck uh, and, and that just is sort of a critical hit when it pops up, you know, because uh, it's your card. Uh, and then the, the monsters themselves have cards and those cards allow them to do certain things, and those things are kind of based on the tarot. And, and then there's a bunch of other tarot mechanics, which are essentially just like different random tables that we built around it. Will the um, orientation of the card when you draw it and place it on the table have any bearing on what happens, like it would in a, in a spread, or will, will it just be the card? We didn't do reversed meanings because when you sit around a table, you know, like it's reversed yeah. for somebody, and, and it got confusing. The nice thing about the mechanic is that it's so similar to a traditional D10 mechanic that it's not very confusing. Like, you don't have to learn a whole new thing. But what it does do, a little, like, miniatures or something, is it focuses people's attention in a different way. If you can imagine the way the game plays, it's everyone announces an action, and then one, two, three, roll dice. Then what happens when that happens? Well, everybody looks at the dice, they kind of squint, they go, oh, that's a five, that's a seven, that's a four. Whereas a Demon City, you go one, two, three, flip, and everyone flips over a card, and you see these cards right away, and it's like poker or something, you know instantly what's the high card. You see, oh, the tower, the devil, you know, like, because those are cards are bigger than ten, you know, and so it's like, oh, shit, the monster. So it's a very slight shift mechanically, but it's actually a pretty big shift in terms of just how it feels at the table. I've noticed when people... When we actually, the fir very first time we did it, we just I said, okay guys, instead of rolling a D10, you're gonna pull off the stack, top of the stack. And they're like, okay. And so you take, you take two cards, you take three, you take two, you take one, face down, okay, one, two, three, we flip. And then instantly everyone's like, ah! Like, the reactions are very different. And so just as a tactile experience, it was, I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how I want the game to go, you know? I can't wait. That sounds amazing. Um, before before I hand the, the mic back to Adam, can um, you talk just a little bit about um, the connection between horror and crime as themes? Because I personally love that take. It's a take that means a lot to my heart. 
but you don't see it a lot. So I kind of want to hear what your thoughts are, like how you came to that, where you want to go with it, just whatever it is you want to say. Well, I, 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 one thing when you're actually trying with the nuts and bolts of building adventures that you notice is that horror and the city are almost slightly opposed things because almost like most traditional horror uh, adventures are about isolation, you know, like uh, they're about getting characters away from resources that they could use. Oh, the phone doesn't work. All we have is an axe. Like, oh, all we have is a rope. Like, and so, you know, The Shining, right? They get them that far away. You go out in the woods. Oh, the woods are spooky. Like, and so my basic premise, which was like the city and horror was already flawed, you know? Um, and so then you look at, well, how do these things work when you do put them together? And the important theme then becomes like corruption, like Rosemary's Baby. Everyone and everything in the city is secretly in on it or maybe in on it or you don't know who to trust or there's a certain level of paranoia. And so it was about kind of showing, making the city like the city, quote unquote, like the, the modern contemporary city into a setting in a certain sense, just like being like, this is actually a, an, a interconnected network of, of disturbing things and try to like the same way I did with like when I did on D and D with the Vornheim, the complete city kid, you know, like trying to make, cause the reason I wrote that is, is James at LOTFP was like, you know, I never really thought of uh, the city as being very exciting. You know, like, you go outside the city, you go to the dungeon, you go to a cave. And I'm like, no, the city's interesting, like Fafford and Gary Mouser. And so I was like, well, why is the city interesting? When does it become dangerous? When do they cut off your access to resources? When does it become spooky? And so I basically just Vornheimed the contemporary city. And a lot of that required, you'll see this especially in the stretch goals, is I went to people who were experts in a certain thing uh, and asked them, like, how does that work? You know, so Jeff Reince wrote something about how car repossession business works, which is, uh, you know, a great adventure hook. Um, and Linda Tirado wrote a thing about how political campaigns work because she's a reporter. So she's like, oh, this is how you can break into a campaign office. This is where they keep the money. These are the tiers of people in charge. And so just the same way that Call of Cthulhu, a lot of that, what makes that game great is just the depth of the Cthulhu mythos. I just went as far as I could into the depth of crime and corruption in cities. Where can you hide a monster? You know, and like, I live in Hollywood, I live in LA. And so I was like, well, the most dangerous people in LA are people who are either in a sports team or a TV show, like who are performers, because they are indispensable. You can't replace them. Like if the CEO of your car company is a shithead, you can replace him with someone with equal business experience. If, like, Daenerys Stormborn actress is a shithead, everyone on Game of Thrones has to be like, we have to live with her for three more years so that the series ends. And so people will do things to protect them, uh, you know, even if they turn out to be a cannibal or something. And so I was like, oh, like that, like the star of a TV show is actually a really good place to put your vampire, you know, because that's somebody who it would re there's a whole network of people who don't want to out them because if they do, they lose their job. So I basically just thought about like those things, like uh, how to insert horror into the everyday and then got people who knew some things to talk about them. Cool. Um, one of the things that we talk about often is, is horror gaming in the modern context and the modern societal context. Uh, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts about 
are horror games kind of inherently problematic or can horror games and like the idea of safe spaces and and those sorts of things coexist i notice that horror is one of the few places i think horror and hip-hop are like the two places where the sort of modern tendency to rip things apart uh, is sort of suspended because everyone who goes there has sort of agreed that the rules are different. You know, um, it's like if it says horror RPG on it, a lot of people who are going to react in an extreme way are just like, okay, I know that's not for me. Like, I know that this is going to be a difficult uh, experience if I do this. And so they kind of self-select out. And so the people who are in are people who are comfortable in that space. Uh, and, and so the bar for traumatizing, dangerous experience is a little bit lower, like higher. You know, like people are like, yeah, you asked for this. Uh, at the same time, I mean, and I think most of that simply applies to the book as an object. Do you want to pick this book up off, off your table? When it comes to the experience at your table of playing a game, I think the rule that goes everywhere is know your players. It's about your players as your friend group. Like, know those people socially. And then that the rules that you engage in with your friends socially about what you bring up and what you don't bring up should be the same ones you bring at the table. You know, like, the only time that that would be weird is in a convention. You know, and, and like where there's people you don't know or game store. And I found uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess almost never has anyone complaining because the game is so fucked up that the only people, or at least, you know, fucked up in the sense that, I don't know, a heavy metal album cover is. I mean, to me, that's not much. But, but the only people who show up are people who are like, yeah, I'm going to be fine with this. So, and I, you know, there aren't a lot of reports of people like going to those games and like having their life destroyed. Uh, so I think that there are certain spaces where, which broadcast, you know? And so I think that, you know, uh, in, in, I think that maybe the weird exception with Vampire is because Vampire had an overlap of people who were like, well, I like horror, but then I had people who were like, I want to be a sexy, cool vampire. You know, like it's more about this sort of imagined space. And because of that overlap, it created like a different kind of reaction because people were like, well, I'm just here to be cool and swing a katana. And now you're telling me there's a severed head and my mom is fucking it? Like, I don't know. So like that, but I think that there's actually a relatively unusual case. Like you don't hear as much trauma and ter terrified uh, reaction to the Call of Cthulhu scenarios, which are often just as freaky, or cult, of course, as just as freaky as, as vampire. It's just like, those people don't show up. And I think that that's as good a way to do it as any, you know? like Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of related, I, I know James Reggie had posted about maybe getting private security for the booth at Gen Con. Did he end up doing that? Yes, he did. Um, so... Okay, so I know that the any people, the people at the any awards, they got security because of all the bullshit. Like last year at the Ennies, this guy who eventually went down for being a sexual predator, um, he uh, 
he he was giving me some shit at the Ennies, and I don't know what all they were thinking behind the scenes, but eventually there's a security guard the next year, so, I mean, good, I guess, like, I was, like, I'm, like, glad I don't have to keep an eye on the girls where there's, like, drinking, you know, like, you know, I, I had my friends there, you know, players, um, and, uh, and then at the booth, like, you know, a lot of the people who are very aggressively mean and critical about LOTFP, I don't think of any of them as being, like, necessarily physically dangerous, but at the same time, they're people who will say anything and do anything, and they are people who have sent death threats and sent rape threats. So it's like, ugh. And so, um, also, I think more than anything, you wouldn't want to be put in a position where the people in the booth had to get in a fight with anyone because then it becomes a thing online of like what happened, who saw what. So having the security guard there was almost less about like physically being safe and more just like we have a neutral observer who, you know, because those like seriously, like the people who are like claiming that Ken Height and these like random Swedish game designers on Vampire were Nazis, it's like these people are crazy. Like like the the people who would do that would do anything. And a lot of them were saying they're going to be at Gen Con. On the other hand, I think a lot of the problem that they have and a lot of the drama that they have comes from being chronically non-confrontational. Like, they don't know how to bring up an issue that they have with something with the person who's responsible. So they don't have a grown-up dialogue about it, and so they stay in these little groups online and just develop conspiracy theories. Uh, so it's really impossible to kind of let the air out of those balloons. So at this point, the balloons have been blowing up for, I don't know, eight, ten years. And so, yeah. So on the one hand, like, they are, don't seem that scary as a physical threat. On the other hand, they're totally unpredictable. Like, like if you've seen Kenneth Height, he looks like he's just like a, he's a cigar-smoking, like, like Hawaiian shirt-wearing dude. You know what I mean? Like, it, like... It would, like, can a Nazi, it's like, you might as well call it, like, a wad of bubblegum a Nazi. It's just like, so once someone thinks that, you're like, yeah, sure, maybe we do need security. Who the hell knows? Um, and security consisted of somebody from Gen Con, like, the, you know, the venue security. So not Gen Con, but, like, whatever the venue. And it was a nice guy named Larry, and, uh, and he was very sweet, and he basically just hung out and had the easiest job uh, all day. Um... But it was fun to just be like, so he's like, what am I doing? And I'm like, okay, how much time you got? <laughs> Let me explain. Uh, cool. Uh, all right. And I've also heard you're doing something for Red Moon role-playing. Can you talk about that at all? Oh, yeah. Uh, Red Moon, I guess, is another horror podcast. But I actually, they wanted to actually have me run a game. So I ran a, I ran a game for them of, of Demon City. Uh, we didn't all have the cards in one place, but they each had cards where they were. And we... They seem to like it a lot, so that makes me happy for the the ability of the game to be played, you know, over Hangouts or something, which is cool. So, so what's it like? What's Demon City going to be like as a play experience? Is, are you going to be playing a human who's interacting with these like otherworldly horrors? Are you I are you going to be a vampire and or like one of these supernatural creatures like in these other these other games? Are you going to be like? a mix of different different stuff like what's the what's the play experience going to be well i created the classes to sort of classes the classes in this game are motives uh, cuz i was like well what what are the kinds of people that show up in these games and and 
And also, like, this, the constant problem is, why would anyone do this, you know? Like, do they really want the world not to end enough that they're going to run into a bunch of Tommy guns fired at them from a bunch of cultists? So I, I built the motive into the character. So there's the, there's the investigator. They're getting paid to figure out what it is. So that could be a cop, insurance adjuster, anyone, as long as they're being paid. They're going to get extra skills after do investigation. There's the curious character, and they're sort of your more classic Lovecraftian academic or the Scooby-Doo kids. Like, their motivation is to find out what's happened, and they're going to have more intelligence skills uh, or academic skills. Um, and then you've got the victim character, who is kind of the combat monster, because they're, gonna, they're the person who's already experienced some kind of scary thing. So they're in it to, uh, like, you know, they're trying to work out their own kind of trauma. And then there's the friend character, who's just somebody who's trying to keep one of the other characters safe. Because I found a lot of times in organized play in all kinds of games, that when there was a pre-existing relationship between two characters, it was actually super helpful, just two, to help for the whole role-playing. Because it was like, oh, that's your sister, or that's your bodyguard. Suddenly it kick-started role-playing for the whole table. And you needed a place for the character who was just like, this is weird, man, but I guess here we go. You know, it's just like Hicks in, in Aliens, right? Um, so there's the friend, and you have to have at least one non-friend, like, so that you're not all just, like, motiveless, right? So you've got three solid motives to investigate the horror, and then you've got one, one place where there's a slot for characters who don't need to have a specific relationship. Um, and they can be in any proportion to each other. And then you can also have a problem character, and that's up to one. And that is sort of like the one character that has the thing. Like Michael in Lost Boys is the one of the of the good guys that's a vampire. Or in Stranger Things, there's the number, what's her name? Uh, number nine or? Eleven. Eleven, right. Like she has the, you know, so she's the one. So that's the default. It's either you're human investigators or you've got one weirdo with you. Um, there's also alternate builds, like alternate, like that change the rules slightly later in the game, like, for if you want to do like an all vampire game or you want to do like a game where everybody has freaky powers. But the default of the game is, is like humans investigating horrors. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's not that's a, not a too alien thing. Um, so yeah, that's the setup. Are, are you looking like at a lot of combat or a little bit of combat? Is it better for one-offs? Is it better for campaigns? Like... Does it matter? Does any of, that, any of that shit matter? Well, it's definitely built for, for campaign play. Um, and it's built for to create horror, like to create investigator protagonists that become, essentially they're, they, be, they, are, they become more connected to the world and more detailed as the game progresses. You gain contacts who are people you know. You gain a connection to the world. You gain these tarot cards and some of them, like some of the tarot card rewards are like, you get a, you know, you get an impressive new car, you know, like things like that. So the character becomes more detailed. I was thinking of like serial horror, like how do they do that? You know, you look at the X-Files and at, by the end of that, Scully and Mulder are much more interesting people. They develop over the time. So, so kind of in between scenes, you, you get a connection to the world and then you get resources to, to deal with the horrors in a different way. Um, so it's built for campaign play. As far as combat goes, it's like, I mean, I think that there's a lot of games where combat and investigation can both be pretty well supported. There's a, there's a lot of investigative skills. There's a lot of uh, 
there's a lot of GM advice on how I run horror adventures and how to build a a horror adventure that doesn't stall and that you don't need to like I, I there's a scheme called Hunter Hunted, which is kind of the underlying scheme of nearly every thriller and, and most horror adventures that you see in movies in real life, which is essentially there's your your classic like the you know there's the danger at the center, right? And you're moving toward it. But the other flip side of it is if your characters do fail to find the clues, they do fail to Sherlock Holmes their way through the scenarios, then you set up a scenario where it makes sense that if you don't find the monster, then you've, you've wasted enough time that the mo- and created enough uh, noise that the monster then finds you. So the genre slip switches from investigation to horror based on how well you do the investigation parts. So you don't have to railroad the characters into being good at investigation, like in Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, you don't have to, like you, and so the the characters get a benefit because they can choose fights on their more on their own terms if they're good at investigating. And you can set up real challenges. And if they fail them, the game keeps going. It's just they have to, to fight, you know, or they have, you know, they're put in different situations. So, and there's a diagram to make it like this is literally how I write an adventure. Like there's a square in the middle. And then there's a around it, around it, and you and you put in your encounters. You build it almost like a dungeon, and that can get you through three or four sessions with just like a simple picture. Especially because in horror and investigation, there's a lot of talking, you know. So there's that. And then the way I built combat was so that it was, I was looking at horror movies especially and just being like, how does combat work, you know? And what I noticed is that it's a desperate scramble for advantage. Number one, like. The horror's gonna win, it's gonna win, it's gonna win, and then you run, and you try to, like, get the high ground, you try to find a chainsaw, you try, you're just trying every round, every second to find something that, that makes your situation slightly better. So, I built a lot of the mechanics around, it's less important, like, which gun you use, and more important, like, the number of advantages you can get stacked. So, it's really dangerous to get in front of the horror, because you have a very good chance of dying, but there's also a tremendous advantage to ganging up. So that's an interesting like risk-reward mechanic for the players, because they're like, any of us could be the target if we gang up on the monster, but at the same time, we have a better chance of success. And also, it's a very chaotic combat system. So you, you know, you're good at something, everybody else is good at something, you don't guarantee that you're going to win the round and do a certain amount of damage each round. It's very much like, because it's the way the combat system works is I thought of it like comic book panels, where essentially one thing happens each round. So only one person is makes a successful attack each round. Other things can happen, but they can't be attacked. So you essentially, the characters or the monster win a round. So you're trying to shoot, this guy has a machete, the werewolf has picked you up and is about to take a bite. One, two, three, flip over your cards. Whichever card wins is the person who did their thing. And so it's very tense but and also chaotic because that thing happened and then you're like shit you haven't pulled the trigger yet okay and then the next one and i found that even though it's pretty different than the way combat normally works it works because it focuses everyone's attention so much because everyone's invested in every flip whereas i notice like playing D, you can and this is a nice thing about D in other ways but you can kind of zone out during someone else's turn you'd be like you know, one, two, three, I shoot it, I kick, and what are you guys doing over there? And then you're like, oh, it's your turn. You're like, what? How many of them are left alive? 
right? How many times have you asked that question, right? In Demon City, you're never asking that question because you're describing the situation constantly. Like, okay, here we are, ready, bam. Um, so you can't, you know, there's less of an atomized combat space. It's, it's very much like you have to constantly re-describe what's going on. Uh, and for horror, it works pretty well. It, it, it definitely is not what I would do for every single kind of game. Uh, but it's for horror, it, it works really well. So you have a very uh, well-developed and distinctive art style. Um, and I noticed that it's really tightly coupled into Demon City. Uh, how does your work as a visual artist uh, inform your writing? Well, uh, for a lot of the things I... Like, I listed off things that had to be there because it's, you know, it's a horror game. We need vampires, right? But then after I did those things, maybe 10 things that have to be there, uh, I would just start making pictures. And so then the creatures and the scenarios came out of the pictures. So it kind of they kind of go back and forth. Like, a lot of times, uh, they're... It's kind of like taking a break from all the work on one thing, but then you shift your mind to something else. So each one becomes a vacation from the other, and then you analyze what you've done, you know? So it was helpful. And then now, what I'm really into is just... Uh, my graphic designer, Sean Chang, is also an artist, and he's someone I work with since for, for decades at this point. Like, he, we met in grad school. And so he is doing this graphic design that it's every spread is different um, because I was thinking like it's a city in urban in an urban setting. Graphic design's part of your life. Like you look around the window that you're looking at in this, you know, like I can see your Ghost Rider poster back there. You have a bunch of DVDs and comics and like those shapes and those colors like are part of your world. If you walk down the street, you're going to see posters and graphics. And so the context that the words and images that I created go into in the setting, as well as just making it user-friendly, mean that graphic design can take over in a really interesting way that it hasn't in any other game book I've seen. And so we're making it so that it really just feels like you're, everything takes you into that place. So, and once you feel you're in the place enough, it's, it's much easier to make up content because you're like, oh, this is, this is a more Demon City solution. This is a less Demon City solution. Same, you know, when you get into D&D &D and you sort of like, oh, the borders and those fonts and the weird twisty things, you're like, oh, I'm in Greyhawk. I know what a Greyhawk solution this problem would look like, you know? So, yeah. So if you have people coming into this who are, I guess, more traditional gamers, they play D&D, &D, they played Call of Cthulhu, what tips would you give them to, to run or play in a horror game like Demon City? I mean, I don't think that there's... A tremendous difference uh, like you if you're coming from Call of Cthulhu then you've probably uh, assimilated a lot of it uh, although I do will say that I tried in the GM advice to solve a lot of problems that people tend to have uh, in traditional horror it, like including that you know what do you do if you fill the skill check kind of thing um, there's that but I also think just like be getting into like get into create a character that you don't want them to die and then it's a you're, it's an exciting game like and over time as you play like make that character somebody you don't want to see die and then and and the gm should help to make those characters feel real 
because the more real they feel, the more you don't want them to die, the more invested you are when they do have a fight, and the more engaged you are when you're trying to think about ways to get around it. But, yeah. Uh, I also feel like I mean, another piece of advice I always see, which is like, oh, you gotta like turn out the lights and put on candles and like have spooky music and maintain this mood. And I'm like, I think actually what kills a lot of horror gaming is people's belief that you have to do that to create horror or tension at the table. I mean, you don't. I think that a lot, if you look at a you know a contemporary horror movie, a lot of there there is jokes and there is fun and like, and yeah, and that's natural in role playing. And then every time players start to like an NPC, they're joking with someone, they're they're getting into a little shtick they do. They're like, oh, I bought a Porsche, you know. That's when you found something you can threaten, you know, like oh you like your Porsche, <laughs> let's kill the Porsche. Oh you like the you like the secretary, let's scare let's let's threaten the secretary. You know, like let your players get into the sitcom of being a group of people bumping around, and then threaten the thing that they start to develop an attachment to, and then they get really invested. Um, and I think that you don't have it can be very organic. Um, I mean, my advice, like, it's no, there's no one way to create horror. There's no steps. But I think the first thing is simply look at what emotions you are getting, whatever emotion that you are getting that's genuine out of players, and then twist that into something scary, you know? And that, like, figure out what attachments they're, they're creating and then go, like, okay, let's, what happens if we mess with that? And then you do get people to jump, you know? I, th- I think it's interesting that you bring up the whole um, playing by candlelight kind of thing because I'm I've always been a big proponent of the playing by candlelight thing, and then very recently I found myself in these scenarios where I have to do like con games. I've been doing a lot of con horror games. When I first started doing them, I was like, "Oh fuck, I'm done. I can't do the thing that I do there." But then I just started to adapt, and I was like, you know, you can have, you can run a plenty fucking scary game in a giant lit hall with everybody around you yelling, and it still ends up being scary. You just you, you kind of have to work a little harder for it, you know, right? Yeah, I also think you work with contrast. Like uh, a lot of times, I, you can set up a scenario where it's mostly the players talk to each other. You know, you're like, okay, you're in a locked room with a van. So they're talking to each other, and they're like, I want to do this, and you just tell them what to roll. You're not describing shit. You're not really GMing very much. You're just telling them the rules, and they're fucking around. And then suddenly, when you do stop and describe something, maybe 45 minutes in, you go, oh, you're going to open the box. Well, inside the box, your hand, you feel the inside of the box is sort of a velvet lid. And then it looks up, and there's just like, appears to be like an eye in there that just opens as the box opens, and it's looking at you. And inside, there's all these red bloodshot veins, and it looks three times, and then just closes. The whole box closes. You've just said more than you have the whole time, and you freaked everyone out because suddenly you've just stopped being a functional utilitarian referee, and you've just said something, and you suddenly they they feel the importance of it just by the volume of how much you talked. You know, you don't have to describe that much or even be that original. You just have to like give them a little more by creating that contrast. So, I think. Look at the context of what you're doing in the game and then just give them something a little bit different when you need it. And then, you know. So you've worked on a, on a bunch of different properties. I know you consulted on Dungeons Dragons 5th. You've worked on Vampire. You've worked on Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Um, what's your favorite property to work on? Well, I love working with LOTFP because, like, basically James is like, do something crazy. Um on the other hand, LOTFP is officially 
17th century, uh, like, uh, Europe. And my D&D game that almost all the things that are my LOTFP things are adapted from is, like, almost vanilla D&D. I mean, in terms of just, you know, it's kind of medieval, you know? So, uh, it's... My, my favorite, really, is D&D, you know, at the end of the day, uh, for properties. You know, like, for somebody else's property. Uh, and, I mean, I, I like Warhammer, too, but I've never actually made anything officially for Warhammer. But I guess maybe my favorite is, like, whatever my own setting that's kind of halfway between D&D and LOTFP is, whatever I, it is that I'm doing at home that shows up on my blog. Um, and, you know, Demon City kind of being almost just like that, but modern. It's, like, just... Demon City is like Vornheim 2018, you know, like, it's essentially the same concept, um, just, just modernized. Uh, it was, it's fun to look at other people's stuff, but at the end of the day, uh, I like my own stuff. What's your favorite book that you, that you've worked on or put out, your favorite supplement? I don't know. Um, I think, I'm very happy with the fact that they each fill different roles like one's the cranberry juice one's the mac and cheese one's the steak you know like i don't feel like any of them are like oh it's that one again but done better like vornheim is really good for anybody who's doing like a fantasy like to improvise like a, a, some useful shit like npcs and stuff like that and i usually have it whenever i play a game and i use it and like maze of the blue medusa is a big mega dungeon it's 200 rooms and I'm using it now, and it, like, it does the trick. And Red and Pleasant Land is a whole continent, and it's completely different, feels different. So I guess I'm just, like, I'm happy so far with what I've done that it, it each one does a, a thing that is something I would like to do. And if I did it only that, I'd get sick of it, and I'd want one of the other ones. So I, it's hard to choose between them uh, in that sense. I do think that in terms of playability that like Frostbitten and Mutilated, the newest one uh, for LOTFP is like so efficient because we got all the tools that we've been doing, like kind of got them down to like, okay, what's the most useful form of this for this? Like I haven't, you know, I can just like run that. It's so easy to run that out of that book that uh, I'm, I'm happy with that, but you know, the other ones have other things going on. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. They all, yeah, it's like one's the mac and cheese and one's the steak. Um, you know, have, have you, uh, talked to anybody, uh, about doing something for a uh, Warhammer fantasy role play? Cause I, for one would love that. Is there any, is there any chance of that happening at some point? I don't know. A lot of times the, the British and fantasy flight people seem like they're sort of a part of a different universe. Um, but Daniel Fox, who did Zweihander, which is like the sort of Warhammer first ed clone, um, he definitely came by the LTFP booth, and he's like super OSR, seeing, and we, we kind of are getting along, so, you know, who knows? Oh, that'd be great. We'd be very excited to see something like that. Um, do you want to uh, have any, like, projects coming up? Like, what's the future? What's the next thing for you? Is there anything that you would be interested in telling us about? I got a few things. Um... James commissioned a project that, uh, like, built around... I had done this painting years ago that was a hundred small paintings of girls and octopuses. Uh, and so he's like, well, turn that into a book. And I was like, but how? And he's like, you'll think of something. And I'm like, fuck, give me the advance, okay. 
And so then I figured out how to do it. Um, so I made like a hundred, essentially one spread adventures, like a like you like a it's a linked bunch of scenarios. Like a, it's it's either a giant campaign or a hundred short one page dungeon, one page setup uh, scenarios um, built around that idea and some time travel and globe spanning and essentially like all of these like incursions from another time are seeded around the world. So, you know, you go to Turkey and you go to Japan and you go to Africa. So it's sort of like the, it's sort of like a world spanning Atlas LOTFP adventure, um, with the real 17th century in it. Like I did my research. Um, so that one, that's going to be nuts because it's just involves so many different elements. Uh, so I, that one's, you know, I, I finished the text and the art, so, you know, it'll be in graphic design for who knows how long, and then probably out this year or next uh, before, yeah. And then one of the people who was supporting Demon City while I was getting written was like, hey, do you think this would work for a superhero game? And I was like, no, because in superhero games, you don't just have super strength. You have, like, Rogue is this strong, and Colossus is this strong, and Superman is this strong. And you need to have a little more scaling, and you need to have a little more blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, but you could do that, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, okay, I'm going to have you do that. And so he just sort of commissioned a superhero version of Demon City as a whole new game out of nowhere. So I started writing that uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's going to have, you know, like all the art's going to be by me probably, and we're going to, you know, trying to like thread that needle for superhero games where it's like, Random generation is fun, and you don't just get this endless point system screwing around, but you don't want to have a guy who has, like, water breathing and magnetism as powers. So, uh, but yeah, I'm just, like, going back at that. Like, the only existing superhero game right now that's big is, is the Mutants and Masterminds system, or DC Adventures, and that's kind of bullshit. So, um, so yeah, we're working on that, um, and, uh, and it's fun. So, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, yeah. Do you want to kind of like tell the listeners how they can get at you with the uh, Kickstarter? Like, what are the details on the Kickstarter? How much time do they have left? I'm going to edit this tomorrow. I'm going to post it right away. So it's going to be here for the weekend of the, what is that, the 10th or the 11th or whatever. So let, let them know. Sweet. Um, the Kickstarter is going for five more days. Uh, if you Google Kickstarter and Demon City, it'll come right up. Um and stretch goal like we've funded the basics uh already but the stretch goal wise uh kenneth height who you know you probably know knights black agents and trail of cthulhu and vampire he's coming up as a stretch goal we're also have a stretch goal coming up of uh doing some random generators online so that you can just press a button and get some stuff content uh so that's coming up and then also the big stretch goal, which you know we don't know if we're going to meet it or not, is if people get if people get a, a considerable chunk more, I draw a whole deck of tarot cards specifically for Demon City, so that it comes with the game or ships, you know, whenever I finish them. Yeah, I'm really hoping to see that one myself. Yeah, a lot of people want to do that, and I'm like, tarot cards are like one of the hardest things to draw because they're so, um, you know, they have to feel real. You know, it can't just feel like you did a picture. It has to feel like there's something really spooky about them. So it's a real big challenge. But like I, I told everybody, if people meet that stretch goal, at that point I will believe in magic. 
and so it'll be a lot easier for me to do them. Yeah. All right, cultists, so you heard it. Get, get your asses out there and support Demon City. I've already got my pledge in. And I just wanted to say, Zach, I I, uh, I was bellyaching like the day after you uh, uh, pitched the game on Kickstarter. And I when I pledged it, and then I wrote this really long, like, self-pitying, like, oh... My own creativity has been has been diminished somehow by Zach's, and you came on and you and you were very kind and you were very supportive of my own ambitions. And so I just wanted to say that was very nice of you. Thank you for reaching out and picking me up in that moment. Um, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show and to hear about the game. And I'm very very excited for it when it comes out. When when the Kickstarter f- funds, which it will. Uh, the the beta becomes available very quickly, right? Yeah, I basically have the I have the stretch goals. All the stretch goals are are basically in at this point, and all the text. And basically, I just need to go back in and make sure, like, I just want to make sure the text isn't embarrassing at that point. Like, no typos, no mechanics that I just did, never managed to change. And then after I do that, which should take a day or two then I'll just, basically, the Word document that I use will be what the backers get, which is a functional game. And then the rest is basically just the graphic design stuff would happen to it. And then, you know, maybe some slight modifications based on that. But you're getting the game that I've been playing for months now. So Awesome, man. Thank you so much. So stoked. So stoked. Adam, you want to take us out, buddy? All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you want to reach us, you can get us at FullMetalRPG.com. Find us on Facebook, FullMetalRPG, Instagram, at FullMetalRPG, and email us. You can hit us up at FullMetalRPGOfficial at gmail.com. And don't forget about the Patreon, FullMetalRPG on Patreon, if you want to support what we're doing and help us get to the next level. Zach, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come talk to us. And we're both backers of your project. I'm really excited for it. Cool. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Good night. Thank you.